Welcome to another UCTV.TV podcast presented by University of California Television. This is a different sort of talk than you've probably seen. Most of these this quarter are probably more on business entrepreneurships. This is a social entrepreneurship, and I think it's, it's a good example of what many of you might be interested in. And if some of you are doing business plans, the business plan competition, it may be a good model for that as well. So this is a partnership between the Institute for Energy Efficiency, which I run, which is doing research here in this area, and Unite to Light, which is a nonprofit that we formed to get this technology out and solve a real social problem. So I'll start off and I'll talk about the technology behind it, and then uh, Claude will talk more about the uh, nonprofit that we formed to do this. And Jacques at the end will talk about some of the volunteer opportunities, and, and he's been very instrumental in, in doing the research uh, for new products for Unite to Light. So this is the problem you're all aware of, that the energy consumption in the United States is increasing rapidly. It's doubling over a period of 40 years, and that's a big problem in terms of being able to supply this much energy to the world. And this is not a surprise. The growth is particular in India and China because of population growth, but also because as people improve their gross domestic product, then they typically require more energy. And so we have this problem of very large amounts of energy being required uh, to keep the world going. This is one solution. In fact, this obviously happens, right? There's a power plant built in the United States, in, in China, coal-powered power plant every week. And uh, that's necessary. It's necessary in the third world as well. But we can't just keep building more and more and more power plants. We need to become much more efficient, and that's the focus of, of what we're doing. This is the other problem of building too many power plants, and again, you're well aware of this, um, but this rapid increase, particularly the last you know, 100 years, in CO2 in our atmosphere, and the effect that has on temperature rise and climate change. So that's the problem we're trying to address. So climate change is one aspect. Just the economic stress of supplying ever more amounts of electricity and, and power when the sources of that, of that, the hydrocarbons, are being depleted, right? So we're rapidly going through and depleting what was accumulated in millions of years of hydrocarbon in a matter of 100 years or less. That's a problem for our, our world, and you're all well aware of that. Um, and the impact we've seen over the last year in terms of instabilities in, in countries that come up, particularly amongst countries that don't have lots of natural resources. And finally, the food shortages, right? So biofuels are great, but if we take cropland away from growing food and use it for biofuels, that makes the problem of feeding the world's population even worse. So that's, that's the thing we're, we're focused on. This is a similar plot to that first one. In this case, it's electricity rather than energy, but it shows basically standard of living by UN Development Index as a function of of electricity use. And what you see is all these countries in the world are sort of moving up this, this growth curve of, of improving their standard of living. And out here is the United States, and even further out there is Canada. But uh, we're kind of leading the world in amount of electricity we consume per person. So this is what we have to change. And this is what we have to, I mean, while you're productive, engineers and, and economists and business people, this has to happen, right, over the next 40 years. We have to reduce our consumption by something like a factor of six without decreasing the standard of living because most societies are not going to be willing to do that and we're not advocating that. But the issue is how do we do it? 
And our focus in the Institute is energy efficiency. How can we make things much more efficient than they are today? It turns out that we waste more energy than we use. So today, if you look at all, where all the energy goes that we use, something like 60% of it is wasted. Only 40% of it actually gives something useful. And so there's a lot of room here to make much more efficient everything, from cars to, to lighting to, to refrigerators. Um, we need to do this in a way that obviously reduces the amount of greenhouse gases going in, in, into our uh, air. And we need to stop, release, extend the, the use of oil in particular, but other things, uranium, coal, that will be depleted if not in, in 50 years, in, in 100 years. And finally, just make our country and other countries that don't have oil more stable and more resistant towards the problems that come when you send a billion dollars a day to the Middle East, which is what we're doing now. So this is a study from the National Academy of Science, and it shows what could be achieved in, in their view. And you see with advanced lighting, LED lighting in particular, you can save something like 35%. In fact, this calculation is probably based, as you'll see in the next slide, more on uh, uh, compact fluorescence than it is on LEDs. I think we can do much better than 35%. We can save you know, much more than that. Other technologies, new cooling technologies, better refrigeration, in particular solid-state refrigeration. So in fact, these two items and this one is a very big focus within IEE and within SEAM. So in this case, we're working on thermoelectrics, which are materials that when you apply power, they heat or they cool. And many of you may have seen these in car seats in particular or compact beer coolers, things like that. And our focus is making devices that are at least a factor of two more efficient than they are today. And, uh, and that's very useful for solid-state refrigerators. It's also very useful for just waste heat uh, recovery. Power production is one, but also just automobiles. Automobiles are very inefficient, as you know. You know, if your fan goes out in the car, it overheats very rapidly. All that waste heat we could recover and use to charge the battery. And that's something that's a very active area of research right now. So the institute was started in 2008, wasn't that long ago. Comprises about 40 faculty and about 120 graduate students. There's 12 research centers and about $40 million a year of research. And that is, the biggest single contributor is a new DOE Energy Frontier Research Center that we have called the Center for Energy Efficient Materials. And uh, that's what's spawning a lot of this. And as you'll see in the talk today, a lot of what we're focused on is using new materials or new breakthroughs in materials to get new technologies, new devices, and more efficient devices in particular. We are supported by private philanthropy. A lot of donors have come in and, and partners. So Southern California Edison, United Technologies, Sony are some of the companies that support the Institute. The Institute has six areas of focus. The top one is lighting. That's run by Steve Denbars. And the focus is making more efficient lighting, but also less expensive lighting. I think you're all aware that you can buy LED lights, but they're, they're pretty expensive, particularly high intensity. Um, I run a group in electronics and photonics. That's to make a more efficient internet, more efficient optical communication, more efficient wireless uh, transmitters on, on, for wireless communications. Fred Chong runs a group on computing. How do you make more efficient computers? And together we work on how do you make more efficient data centers. Uh, Igor Mezik runs a group on buildings and design. And so those are smart buildings, right, that adapt to how many people are in a room in terms of how much air conditioning or lighting you provide. Uh, Guy Bazan runs a group in production and storage. We'll talk a bit about that today in terms of more efficient solar cells. 
And Charlie Kolstadt runs a group on economics and policy. And that's how do we get people to change their behaviors? So how do we get people to adopt more efficient cars or more efficient lights? And obviously, one example was the attempt to ban the incandescent light bulb, and, and there's been a lot of feedback or resistance to that of late. Um, so in terms of more efficient lighting, this comes out of a very fundamental materials discovery that uh, Suji Nakamura made. And so he's in the materials department here. And 20 years ago, people weren't working on gallium nitride. There weren't blue LEDs that, that existed with gallium nitride because you couldn't make P-type gallium nitride, and everyone knew that. So they worked on other, other materials, primarily what are called 2-6 materials. But part of the point today is that by focusing on materials, you can solve a lot of these problems. So for those of you that are in science or engineering, that's a very fruitful area to work on, uh, whatever the problem might be. Uh, part of the problem is making these blue LEDs, which is what's shown here. So now we can, as you'll see in the next slide, make very efficient LEDs. But to get white light out, you need to get all the colors of, of the rainbow, right? So you need good phosphors, and uh, maybe just one phosphor, maybe a multitude of them. And uh, that's another big area of research right now going on in the chemistry department, chemical engineering, materials research lab, as well as the institute, um, in terms of how do you make, make better devices than exist today. And the third approach is not to use a phosphor to convert blue into white, but rather to combine three LEDs together, red, green, and blue. And today we can make very good blue LEDs and very good red LEDs, but green LEDs are, are really terrible. They're probably six times less efficient. That's the big problem. And that'll, when that gets solved, will manifest itself in many ways. So projectors, microprojectors will become very useful. So we can show things off our our cell phone rather than have a, bring a projector with us. But today we don't have a very efficient green LED and that's a very big focus right now in the Institute. What this plot shows is the improvement we've seen over time in efficiency measured in, in lumens, right? If you look on your light bulb you can see the, how many lumens it, it puts out. But the efficiency lumens out per watts in versus time. And again early on people made very good red LEDs so you know, 20 years ago, instrument panels had red LEDs. They didn't have any blue, but lately blue is very cool and, and works really well. And so we see that on lots of devices these days. And now the efficiencies are upwards of 190 lumens per watt. So that's almost 20 times, certainly 15 times what, it, what an incandescent light bulb is today. And it's a good six times better than compact fluorescence. So we're all working at replacing our light bulbs with compact fluorescence. That's okay but a much bigger benefit comes with LEDs. And so that's been the focus of a bunch of people, primarily Suji Nakamura, Steve Denbars, Jim Speck, Chris Vanderwall, and that, that group of people. This slide is sort of the last real technical slide I'll show, um, but it shows that in terms of efficiency, blue is very good, very high efficiency, upwards approaching 100%. You know, light bulbs are very inefficient, right? You just heat up a wire and it emits light and heat and everything everywhere. And red LEDs are very efficient, but in here, in the green and yellow regime, LEDs have not been very efficient. But of late, they've gone from down here up to these sorts of numbers in these squares. And again, my point is just it's an invention that did that, right? So as people studying why are LEDs inefficient and coming up with a solution, in particular, this group of people, primarily, in fact, at UCSB, came up with the idea that you needed a different orientation, a semipolar or nonpolar orientation that would allow a much more efficient LED. So again, the point is just it's, it's acts of invention that solve these problems, that 
fact that you don't have a good green source is not fundamental. We just need to invent our way around it. And uh, some very exciting research in the last couple of months in Chris Vanderwall's group here is looking at a very fundamental theory to why these are inefficient. And if you have a really good theory to why they're inefficient, you can then figure out how to solve it. And it turns out that the conclusion of that theory is that indeed nonpolar should be a really good solution to it. So, so that's where the institute comes from and a lot of the research that goes on here. But now let's get to the social entrepreneurship part. So about five years ago, four years ago, Ose Darkwa, who's president of Ghana Telecom University, came to UCSB, had a visit with Matt Terrell, uh, dean of engineering, and Matt was telling him all about this brand new Institute for Energy Efficiency. Uh, and so he asked to see me, and he came and visited me, and he said, I was telling him all, showing him all this stuff about the great research we're doing. And he said, that's really nice, but why don't you help people? Can't you help people? This doesn't do us any good. And his goal is to get lighting for students in Ghana. And they've noticed a very significant correlation between whether students have lighting at home and how well they do in school. If they don't have lights, they do poorly, and they don't graduate. And, and his goal is to get a light for every student in Ghana, which is something like millions of lights. So that, that's an issue. Um, and so that's been our, one of our focuses since then, is to take this technology and make, make something that would help people. As you've seen, there's lots of things like solar-powered flashlights out there. And when we started, and Jacques was very much a part of this, went out and bought every solar-powered flashlight out there, which is OK. And, and there's a lot of good technology there. But it's a little hard to read and study when you have to hold this the whole time. So we, we focused on making reading lights and also just making something that's less expensive than what existed at the time or really exists today. Because if you're going to do this on the scale of millions or hundreds of millions, it has to be inexpensive. So part of the problem is just having lighting at all. But there are other issues. Lighting by kerosene or candles or wood is really expensive, right? It's about $6 a month in most of these countries. And that's a lot more than, than you would pay for one light bulb working in your home. It's, it's more than 10 times more expensive for them to light with kerosene than it is for you to light your home. And so that's a problem. Another big problem is just burning kerosene is, puts out lots of soot. It's very unhealthy. The World Health Organization has estimated that if you get your lighting from kerosene, it's equivalent to smoking two packs of cigarettes a day. So we can encourage students to, to learn and read at night, but if you're encouraging them to effectively smoke two packs of cigarettes a day, maybe that isn't really worthwhile. So that's, that's the other problem we're trying to solve. And the final one is the fire danger, that you know, millions of people get burned from the fact that kerosene lamps get knocked over and beds and houses and things like this get, get lit on fire. So Claude here has an example. He has a kerosene light. Um, so you can see what one of these works looks like. This is actually better than what is typically used. You see the smoke coming off that? This is US grade kerosene and US grade wood. You don't find that in the developing countries. You just see it come off. Long enough. Sure. So that's the problem. That's what we're competing with. And that's what we want to eliminate. And I believe that within our lifetimes, we can eliminate kerosene as a lighting source uh, in the world. This is a, a plot. Um, Marty Jenkins is our quality testing guy. And uh, he set this up to, to look at how much soot comes off one of these things. If you go to YouTube, there's a Unite to Light channel. You can see it. But that's just showing all the soot in just six minutes that comes off one of these kerosene lamps. 
And as Claude says, that's US-grade kerosene, which is probably better than you get in most third world countries. So what we had to come up with, our goal here was now to take the best, most efficient LEDs and create a low-cost, portable, solar-powered version of, of, of this for, for education. So the second half of the problem, besides lighting, is how do you recharge this, right? So many of you have an LED keychain light and things like this, or other LED-powered lights from batteries, but that doesn't last all that long, and, and it's not very good for the environment to keep throwing away batteries. So we're looking for rechargeable batteries, and in particular, charging them up with solar cells. And so this is sort of the efficiency of all the different solar cell technology that's out there. Um, in particular, in our research center, we focus on multi-junction solar cells, which are some of the most efficient solar cells in the world, and they're ungodly expensive, so we're not using that. Another big area of research is plastic solar cells, and this is the kind of technology that Alan Heger won the Nobel Prize for, for conducting polymers. And that's a very promising, very low-cost approach, but inherently it isn't very efficient. So if you compare these two, if the efficiency difference is, say, a factor of eight, then one has to be eight times bigger than the other. We were trying to find something small. So we ended up working with combinations of these. We've used single crystal silicon solar cells. We've multi-crystalline solar cells, not unlike what many people put on their roof. And uh, it's reasonably efficient, and, uh, which means we can make it very small and compact. And uh, that's been the focus of our design. So this is an example of what we came up with. Um, we went through a bunch of iterations early on, and uh, we've got a bunch of these sitting down here, which you can see. Um, so we use a single LED. If you look at a lot of what you've seen out there, uh, you'll see like eight or 10 LEDs. Our goal was to get a single but high brightness LED to reduce the size, the cost in particular, and also just the impact on the Earth. Why well, use a big array of LEDs if you can make one more high power and, and work? Um, the solar cell is reasonably efficient. It's, it's about 20% uh, efficiency. It's a single crystal silicon solar cell. And then there's a battery in here which we recharge off that solar cell. So you run the light until it runs down. This will run about 10 hours on a single AA battery and uh, then recharge. It takes probably two days to fully recharge to get 10 hours of light output. Um, but the battery fits under here. There's a little cover here that uh, is re removable because the LED should last for 20 years. The solar panel should certainly last for 10 years, but the uh, battery is probably the first thing that will wear out, as you've all seen. And uh, it's rated for 550 recharge cycles, so it should last for two years at least if it's used every day. But that's the element that's, that's uh, replaceable. So this is an effort of a bunch of people. Shock and I sort of got it started. Dave Schmidt did the electrical design. Norm Gardner did the mechanical design. And then uh, Tony Lin, who's a student here at ECE, whose father uh, owns a plastics company, uh, did a lot of the subsequent design and manufacturing. And Bin Liu has been guiding our efforts for to have these made in China. Because again, if we want to replicate these by millions of times, low cost is important. And, uh, and as I mentioned, Marty's been doing our quality and testing. So uh, with that, I'll hand it off. This is a couple early pictures of, of uses of it uh, in Africa. But I'll uh, hand uh, this over to Claude, and he'll talk more about it. Thank you.
One of the things we try and do at Unite to Light is uh, under-promise and over-deliver. John mentioned to you it takes about two days to fully charge this. Uh, That's what we tell people. That's what we promise. We tell them eight hours of direct sunlight will produce four hours of LED light. Take this light out, put it in the bright sunlight right now, it'll produce six to seven hours of LED light. You have no problems if people get more light than you promise them. We still make it eight to four, though, because we may be able to lower the price a little bit more by going to a slightly less efficient solar panel. Current price of manufacturing these, well, let's see. We started a year ago. It was costing us $8.50 each to make it. As of today, it's $5.98. We expect to make it even lower. We don't run fancy surveys and studies, but we just intuitively know that if we can make it cheaper, more people can afford it. We're completely transparent in everything we do, including our pricing. You can buy this $7 FOB factory in China. That gives us a margin of $1.02. If you're at all skilled in business, you realize that's not a really big margin, but you do need to have something to pay the phone bill with. Now, John is modest about the design of this light. But you know, it's being made to go to places where there's no radio shack, there's no battery testers, where things are difficult. So it needs to be tough. Now that light passes a drop test, an electronic drop test. So how many pieces did it go in? Got a battery? Okay, usually the battery cover comes off. The battery comes out. Now I did this one time, and I reassembled it, and I went to click it on, and it didn't come on. I thought, oh boy, how am I gonna talk myself out of this? And I found the weak spot, me. I had forgotten and turned in the battery upside down. I'd reversed it. It wasn't the problem with the light. Another thing is, is, you know, a lot of the country, a lot of the world, when it rains, it rains brief and hard. You don't have rainy days, you have rainy times of the day. So this is the same light that I just disassembled. Put a washer on it, otherwise it floats. Now, by the way, this light is not supposed to stay on because immersion is a great deal different than rain. But nobody told that to the light. So we'll just let it sit there while I talk. When the folks at the World Bank bought 50,000 LED lights to send to Haiti, they couldn't find more than 10,000 at one place. And they're also disappointed at how well they lasted because they started deteriorating in the rain. I said, check your email and sent them that. Now, the reality is that light's never going to get shipped anywhere because it's probably going to get a few drops of water in it while it's sitting here, and that's not good for it. But it does withstand rain. Now, let's talk about how we distribute this light. I did this wrong. Okay. We sent our first order of 1,250 lights arrived on December 31st, New Year's Eve, 2010. We air freighted 100 of them out early January to Ghana. At the end of the year, we had passed the 14,000 light mark. The lights are proving pretty popular, as you would expect. The lights have been sent. We can't keep up on these things, okay? This is actually an incorrect slide in two respects. One, it says 33 countries, but if you count them, I think you'll see 30. Okay, and it's actually 34 countries. 
So we just can't keep up with it. Uh, but the point is, there's a lot of places that need the light. And so we send them where they're needed when people contact us. We currently have 17,000 lights that have been produced. We're pending orders for 28,000 more. When John talked about tens and hundreds of millions, that's exactly what we intend to do. When you've got over a billion and a half people in the world that are using things like kerosene to light their homes, and it's lousy light in addition to being unsafe and expensive, a solution really needs to involve more than 10 or 15 or 100,000 lights. It's nice to do that many lights. There's no question about it. It feels good. But it doesn't solve the problem. We're out to try and solve the problem. When we set out to start, by the way, we did not plan to make a light. We thought somebody out there must be making a light. Go ahead and pass it up when you're done looking at it. Somebody, somebody out there must be making a light that's good enough to do this. We'll just buy their light and distribute it. We didn't find anybody making that kind of a light. Maybe there is somewhere. We're not about, you good at catching? Ready? Here it comes. All right, I'm going for distance. Okay. Our idea, you see, we're not out for market share. We're not out to be the light that everybody buys. We're out to have people have light. So if somebody else can make a light that's as good as our light for the same or less money, we'll stop making lights and we'll start buying lights. A little different than your normal company. We're not out to dominate the world or have market share. We look at other light manufacturers and we don't consider them to be competition. They're allies. We're all allied in the battle against darkness. If somebody is lucky enough to be somewhere where they actually have a choice, Everybody wins whatever they choose. Most of the people in the world who need these lights don't have one choice, much less multiple choices. Part of the way we intend to scale this up is our distribution plan. Let's say it costs $10. It's actually a little less than that now, but just to make the math easy. Let's say it costs $10 to make a light, to ship it, pay any duties or fees, and put it in the hands of somebody in a developing country. If we go out, John and I, and get $10,000 in donations, make 1,000 lights, if we take them out and give them away, 1,000 families are better off, and that's a wonderful thing. But if those people are, by and large, buying kerosene, no matter where they are, while kerosene can vary in cost, it's expensive. And nobody picks it off a tree or digs it up out of their backyard or processes it themselves. They have to buy it in the commercial marketplace. They have the money for kerosene. They have the money for this light. It varies from country to country. But in some countries, full payback time for this light is in the range of maybe six weeks. In some, it may be two months. Some maybe a little more, a little less. Bottom line is, is after that, you're looking at just batteries. Okay? You're not going to be able to get rid of all your kerosene with this. There'll be rainy days. There'll be periods when you want another light, anything like that. But you're going to save a lot of kerosene, and the cash payback is going to come quick. Okay? So if we can sell, if we take the 1,000 lights and we manage to sell them, and we get paid for just 95%, and we take that 95%, and we make more lights without taking into account that as we're scaling up, our costs will go down or anything like that, we make 
95% of the first batch of as many lights as we made the first time. Send them out back and forth, losing 5% every time. goes about 89 times, so you send out that last single light. Theoretically, get paid for part of it, and you're done. It becomes 19,163 lights. That's how we see this getting up into the tens of millions. We do give some lights away. We give away as many lights as we can. There are some people that it's the only way they're going to get lights. But when somebody asks us to give them 1,000 lights for free, we see 19,000 lights. And we think that in the long run, we're going to be able to give away more lights if we can sell lights. Our distribution partnerships are important. One of the key decisions we made going in, and it's proven to be an excellent decision, is that well-intentioned people in Santa Barbara, regardless of how much experience they have and how many years and in how many different disciples, disciplines, rather, they don't know how to do business in Kenya or Ghana or Afghanistan or Guatemala or Haiti. We don't. What we need is a distribution partner. We need somebody who's established and respected there, who knows how to do business there, that we can count on there. One of those partners is Rotary International. Now, at your age, if somebody had said Rotary to me, I'd have said it belonged in the same sentence as Buick. Okay, it was great for my dad to belong to Rotary, not something I would have thought about. And I never joined Rotary until yesterday, as a matter of fact, is when I became a member. It's incredible. If you knew more about what Rotary does, you would really like Rotary. You know, Rotary is the organization that has set as its goal the elimination of polio throughout the world. And if you want to know how efficient they are at spending money, one of the world's best-run charities, the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, has given them over $400 million to do that. They don't give their money away to people they don't think are going to use it wrong. That's Rotary. Rotary is one of our partners. We have the endorsement of the international president of Rotary, the president of a 1.2 million member organization, the support of the incoming president. We have three projects, one in, in active phase, two in early stages, and several others that are at the discussion stages. The initial one is 1,800 lights. The second two are 7,500 lights total. Uh, initial is in India. The other two are in Bangladesh. Rotary is not in the business of running businesses, but they are in the business of helping people. And so what we're trying to do with these projects is create a model that can be replicated for people to, sell, to learn how to sell these lights to generate income for the schools, the orphanages, the villages that are going to receive these lights. Rotary will help them do that. It's also extremely helpful to us because every project you have has a Rotary Partner Club in the country where the lights are being distributed. And Rotary has very tight organizational requirements and funding requirements and audit requirements and paperwork requirements. They really watch it like a hawk. And it's very important when you're sending lights in large numbers to places that by definition have little or no infrastructure and where corruption and bribery are often the order of the day, you need a partner that can make sure that what you're making these lights for is how they're used. Rotary does that for us. The Mitsubishi Kaiteki Institute, there are lots of Mitsubishi companies in Japan. There are none of them small, so far as I know. This particular one does $40 billion a year in sales. The Kaiteki Institute portion of it is their research and development arm. They're charged with looking at social and product trends 30, 40, 50 years out and anticipating where their company should be. And that's the kind of time frame we should always be thinking about, even as we think about shorter time frames. They, have, they bought from us 
enough lights to send 2,000 to tsunami victims in Japan, enough to send 4,800 to developing countries, and there too we're doing a, a model that we will replicate. Okay, that when we and they have made clear indication that there's more money there as we show that we can use this in a good way. So the last $20,000 we got from them, we pumped it into rotary projects. So we've created $50,000 worth of rotary projects with $20,000 of seed money from the Kaiteki Institute, so Rotary gets $50,000 project for $30,000. Everybody gets leverage. It all works. Direct relief. We're very proud that direct relief is one of our partners. Now, there's a rule in the business world. Nobody lives next to an expert. Okay? I testify sometimes as an expert witness. I've testified more often in Cleveland than in Los Angeles. And the reason is... Nobody says this, but the reason is, is nobody thinks they live next door to an expert. Okay? They almost have to be from somewhere else. We happen to have a world-class charity right here in Goleta, Direct Relief. Not many young, little organizations can actually be a partner with Direct Relief. We're proud that we are. When they saw our lights, we, we had one of our first lessons about what really goes on in developing countries. John and I sat down with them in the hopes that we could get to use their discount airfare arrangements with air shipping arrangements with FedEx, and they took a look at the light and they said, hmm, search and rescue, childbirth kits, medical procedures, things we had not even thought about. We got all of them, except I didn't get the search and rescue part. So I said, help me understand the search and rescue part. And they said, show me a flashlight that can do that. When you're in the ruins of an earthquake building and you need to get something small and bright to see what's on the other side, we'd like to use your light. So now at this point, these lights are in direct relief kits that are issued to midwives in training. They're in childbirth kits. Each of these childbirth kits has enough for 50 births. When the kits are done and the supplies have all been used, the light will still be going strong. Those 600 midwives that are currently have the lights when they go back to their home villages with the lights, they will take a Unite to Light entrepreneurial kit with them to help them answer the question that people will inevitably ask, which is, how do I get one of those? The Peace Corps. We have Peace Corps projects going in Burkina Faso, which is a country in Africa. I don't know about the rest of you, but I'd never heard about it until we got involved with them. And Ghana. We hope there to create a model that we can replicate as well. Then there are the smaller distribution partners. They're smaller, but they're no less important. In developing countries, and you know, right now, you're hearing John and you're hearing me, and typically when you're talking, you don't learn anything. You just learn what's already in your own head. You learn when you read or when you see or when you listen to somebody else. And we do a lot of that. And one of the things we learned about developing countries is that men make most of the income. And when men make the income, it doesn't all go to their families. It's not unusual to have as much as 30% or so, sometimes more, that doesn't get to the families. There are stories, and I'll give you one that Nicholas Kristof, a Pulitzer Prize winning author, has used in one of his books, written with his wife, Cheryl Boudin, also a Pulitzer Prize winning author in her own right, about children dying in India I think it was India, maybe been elsewhere, let me not say India, children dying because they didn't have mosquito nets. Mosquito nets cost $5. Their fathers are spending $5 a week at a local bar. Can you imagine? 
spending on a local bar money that could save your child's life. But when women make money, and when women control assets, 100 cents goes to the family. The stature of the women is improved. The livelihood of their kids, the birth rate goes down, education level goes up. All these good things happen the more women make money. So we are very interested in encouraging operations where women can grow assets and can make income. Solar Sisters is an example of this, run by a lady named Catherine Lucy, lives up in the Northeast. A, uh, she, calls, she calls her business a business in a bag, or Avon comes to Africa. In Uganda, a woman comes to her, she gives them a cloth bag, it's got like eight or ten lights in it. Different kinds of lights, one of them is ours, the others are different people's lights. Lady goes out, sells lights. The ones that sell best, they come back and reorder. Business in a bag. Over 130 of them doing that last time I checked. I think the number is going up all the time. That's in Uganda. Destined for Grace is a local operation. A couple of young ladies here in Santa Barbara decided they wanted to support a school in Haiti. They opened two thrift shops. All the proceeds go toward these schools. They've made a couple trips. We're also selling our lights. One of the things we do in the United States is we sell our lights at a significant markup, $25. And the reason we sell them at $25 is because if we're going to sell them to people who want to support us, but for whom, for whom the light is a convenience, not a necessity, we've got to get enough money to pay for the light we give them and to make some more lights. And so people are fine with that. So they sell lights at $25, and lights go to Haiti. The Flying Kites Leadership Academy in Kingapook, Kenya. 100 kids. 50 of them live on campus, 50 of them off campus. Every one of these kids is an orphan. Parents killed in genocide, or they've been abandoned or they've been abused. The kids off campus were not progressing as fast as the kids on campus, and a large part of the reason was because the kids on campus had a generator. As John mentioned, when kids can read and study, they learn more. In the developing world, it is a huge deal for parents to let their kids go to school, period. It takes them out of the fields during the day. When school is not in session, they go back to work in the fields. Their time to do anything education-oriented outside of school is at night. They need light to do that. Flying kites, we sent them a gift of 100 lights. Then a donor came up, bought another 250 lights because people in the villages around were asking whether they could buy some lights. So we're hoping it'll be a revenue model for that school. They're also the only place I know that has a lending library that when you borrow a book, you get a light. They lend lights with books. What's the use of borrowing a book if you can't read it? It's the only time of day that you're going to have the chance. The Nomad Foundation. This supports the exact kind of group you would think, nomads, okay, in Niger. Some things about the nomadic population that I'd never known. I mean, I thought nomads are always on the move. Well, that's true, they are. But every single nomad in the area of Niger crosses a particular point twice a year. It's a crossroads on their travels. Now, they don't like being around other people. These folks are digging wells, and they deliberately dig wells, small wells, so they can't support a lot of people because the nomads don't want to be around a lot of other nomads. So better to have 10 small wells than one big well. But can you think of somebody who could get more benefit out of one of these lights than a nomad? You strap it to the camel while you're walking during the day, and you use it at night. 
That's another thing about these lights, by the way. They don't care where they are to get a charge. Sometimes people say, gosh, I'm worried it may get stolen if I leave it on my roof. I say, well, what do you do? You work in a field? Yeah. Let's take it with you. Doesn't care where it is. And what's more, if you don't have a pocket, put it around your neck. Angle it just right, it'll charge as you walk. Okay. No problem. The, so the, now, as the nomads cross those two points every year, there are local women, often nomadic women who have come off the road, so to speak, and are living in villages, are selling them lights so that they can improve their standard of living. This organization would not work without uh, volunteers. Uh, we obviously don't charge enough uh, to uh, pay but uh, the, the most important overhead costs. So people who volunteer to do the design, people who volunteer to get the word out, people who do volunteer to do all these sorts of things. And if that's something that maybe sounds interesting to you, we've got a few uh, things that uh, we're looking for. So if, if you're interested, you can come and talk to me after... Uh, but uh, hopefully you have some time, uh, like a few hours a week, four, three to five hours a week to devote to this. Uh, one problem that we see, and I don't know if other of you have been involved in organizations, is people will become, they'll be very excited, and then they'll fade away. So if you uh, feel like you can devote a good chunk of hours on a weekly basis for a, a good period of time, these are some of the, the things that we're looking for. So uh, in order to get everything out there, uh, website development would, uh, if, if people have that savvy, that would be helpful. Um, also, just testing the lights. And uh, maybe someone who has other uh, interesting uh, tests other than the, uh, the dunk test um, could uh, come and help uh, people with uh, electrical engineering skills or, or other test skills like that. Um, also, uh, fundraising. As you can see, fundraising is important to growing this uh, company. Um, and then managing some of the relationships. What's happening now is we have a small group of people and a whole bunch of people interested in the lights. So just people who can manage different regions would be something very valuable if, if uh, people have contacts or people are interested in donating some time. There's uh, also some other things that we'd like to get the word out, like this public relations uh, concept uh, and then uh, if you know of any other um, partners that we could partner with or are willing to do some research and uh, find some partners that, oh, this would be a perfect match. Uh, Claude gave a very good demonstration of a, a very broad diversity. And so the, the concept of a partner could be um, anything that you can think of here. Um, also, just general logistics things. Um, and including uh, logistical things like uh, donor relations, making sure that people who donate get thank you notes and things like that. So, um, uh, Mariana has been our uh, intern for a year now, so she might be another person that you should uh, uh, talk with to get an idea of uh, how, how we're doing what we're doing. And then um, Christina just uh, joined as a, as a volunteer and will be helping us out. So... Um, I think they're gonna is now they're gonna walk around for questions. Or did you have another slide in mind? Ah, the uh, the pitch. Together we can eliminate kerosene lighting um, in the next ten years, and I think that's a pretty realistic goal, especially when you're partnering with a big group like Rotary. Rotary really has done a great job of eliminating polio, and we think we can do a, a better job of uh, eliminating kerosene. And, and um, so, if you want to help, please participate. And uh, 
check out our website, uh, unitetolight.org. I was wondering if you could talk about your distribution channel. Is there any alternatives to production in China? Um, maybe not price comparisons, but other benefits as to distribution. And uh, why did you choose to distribute through uh, NGO partners instead of yourself? So we started with manufacturing in Taiwan. So that was uh, the first units were all made in Taiwan. And we qualified them and went through lots of tests and just running lifetime studies on them. And then after that, we needed, we were pushing them hard on price, and we, we switched, brought a second manufacturer up, one in China, which has now been qualified, and that's working very well. So we have two suppliers. We tried to get a third one in India, because obviously there's a huge need in India. And if it's manufactured there, then you don't have to pay customs, right, to, uh, to bring it in. That has not worked out so well yet. Uh, I guess we're still hopeful it will. Um, a lot of countries have asked if they could make them there. And I think the general thought is it probably doesn't make sense to make LEDs in a third world country. It's a very expensive process. You need to have a lot of volume developed at that point or even to make solar cells. But maybe the assembly aspect could be done in these other countries. But our pushback so far has been get to the point of volume, prove that there's a real need before you spend the money to buy the parts. So like one of the reasons this works is because there's a seam sealing unit that seals the back piece of plastic to the front piece. Okay, you know, I don't know what it costs, $5,000 probably. At least get to the point where there's enough volume in that country before doing it. But we're happy to give the design uh, or even just ship parts directly to any other country that wants it. Before you can start distributing, before you start manufacturing in another country, and it is ultimately our goal, we'd love to see these manufactured as close as possible to where the lights end up, because then you're creating jobs as well. But the number of things that you need, you need a volume that is enough to do it, needs to be proven and sustainable. You need infrastructure that will let you have people that can do it, that can get to work reliably, which means transportation, whose child care responsibilities are not going to prevent them from getting to work, which means health care and schools. Need all, and then you need a place that's secure to hold, invent, hold parts and manufactured inventory, and then you've got to be able to ship into and out. You need a lot of things. And, but any place that comes close to meeting those things, we're happy to do. With respect to the distribution aspect, why NGOs? We haven't limited it to NGOs. Okay, we, will, we will consider a distribution arrangement with anybody that is established and respected in the area where they want to distribute the lights that will tell us what their markup is. We understand the need for a markup, okay? But, and we don't tell them what price to charge, but I, we put it very simply. We're not working as hard as we are to bring the price down so they can charge 30 bucks for the light. It's just that simple, okay? So we've gotta be comfortable with the markup. They've gotta be non-discriminatory in the distribution of the light. There are a lot of places in this world where things like education are rationed, particularly boys get them, boys get it more than girls. And while we don't expect any society to change its way of doing things just because a bunch of people come in with lights and good intentions, we at the same time expect them to respect ours. So if there's a village with 100 students, 80 of them boys, 20 of them girls, and only 40 lights get there, they're going to 20 girls and 20 boys. We'll get the other 60 as soon as we can. They've got to agree to that. Anybody that meets those criteria. We have fundamental Christian organizations, which are very big in a lot of the developing world. We have individual entrepreneurs. We have one company that 
that uses our light as a low-cost entry-level product for commercial products that they sell and systems that they install, uh, have individuals, whatever. Anybody that meets those criteria, we're willing to talk to. Did you go through a couple prototypes to get the, you know... The <laughs> More than a couple. The, the desk lamp idea and the, the, especially the twisty light where you're saying like search and rescue is, you know, invaluable. So can you kind of comment on that? Well, it's kind of two parts were parallel. So the guy, Dave Schmidt, was doing the electrical end of it. And uh, so that was actually made in a piece of wood. He hollowed it with a, with a lathe, and a, you know, an end mill, a piece of wood, and mounted all the parts in there to kind of get a sense of it. Because the first time you try and do plastic parts, it's cost of probably, what, a minimum $5,000. And so early ones were just using, you know, any way to do quick quick turnaround. One nice thing about the electrical design, by the way, is at the time, everybody, if you looked at like a BOGO light at the time, they had three batteries in there. And they have three batteries in there because you need four volts to drive a blue LED. That's pretty much inherent. But, but the big cost of that unit is the battery. And, uh, and, you know, whenever batteries run out, you never know which one it is, and so you have to replace all of them, particularly in a third world country. They don't have battery testers. So we, worked, we wanted a design that just would multiply the voltage off a one and a half volt single AA battery to get up to the four and a half volts you need and do that inexpensively. And so we went through a few different electrical designs to do that and uh, a few different mechanical designs. So one valuable part, again, for all of you starting companies um, is what Jock did, which is he bought everything out there you could. Bought a couple of units of every solar powered LED light out there and we looked at them all and, and uh, again, it's what Claude said. If we could have at the beginning, in fact, I was hoping we could just buy someone's light, but there really weren't any reading lights out there, and they're all relatively expensive. And we all looked at them, and we looked at them and said, "This has got nine LEDs or three batteries and big solar cells." I mean, at the time when we started this, most of them were selling units this big, and and you know that the cost of that's proportional to how big the area is, right? So we tried to make come up with a, a low-cost design. Our manufacturers are ISO certified in terms of quality, but they also have human rights compliance. In terms, I mean, we are not going to be an organization that finds out it's been trying to do good things, and it turns out that you've been relying on a foundation of people doing bad things to other people to bring the price down. Okay, working standards, labor, labor conditions, wages—these are all internationally monitored and meet the standards. I was wondering if you guys have a marketing team that's working on the Tom Shoe model with this, or if you guys have done anything based off the Tom Shoe model. I mean. I would buy that light, and that would give two lights to someone else. I feel like there's a lot more people in this room that would do that. Are you guys exploring those channels, mass yes. marketing it? Yes, we're open to it. We've tried it a couple times. It hasn't come together. Sometime in this coming year, it probably will. We've approached a couple companies about it. You, you mentioned that you uh, distributed 17,000 lights, and you had orders for 28,000 more. I'm wondering, what's your capacity now, and how do you see... Is it is it a, 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 a if tomorrow um, somebody came and said I want to buy a million of these lights what what was the would be the time horizon or what would be the barriers to hundred thousand lights would take us forty five days a million lights might take us ninety so it can scale up that quickly that quickly maybe even faster if we needed it to and matter of fact I kind of left something out when I talked about the twenty eight thousand lights on order. One of the things we're developing is a safety stock arrangement. Essentially, the manufacturer, once we hit 15,000 with this manufacturer, for every light they make that we pay for, they will make another light that we will pay for eventually, but not yet, that'll just sit there. So the next time the World Bank goes out looking for somebody, 
where USAID goes out looking for somebody that can give them 50,000 lights, the answer is going to be, here they are. In particular, Claude's talking about disaster relief, right? Yeah. So the reason we sent 2,000 lights to tsunami victims was a day or two after the tsunami happened, Mitsubishi called us up and said, could you send 2,000 lights to uh, this island off the coast of Japan? And, and we did. They were ready, and we did it. And um, same thing with Oklahoma, I think, after the tornado. Yep. We sent lights there. Again, uh, disaster situation. So we'd like to build up enough that if something, unfortunately, a major earthquake happens, a major hurricane, whatever, we could send those in to the victims of, in that. So, In growth, what's your bottleneck right now? Distribution. We, we need more distribution partners that buy bigger quantities. One of the things we need is regional distribution. You know, the Solar Sister and the Flying Kites Leadership Academy, the people who need 50, 100, 150, 200 at a time, the way to get lights to them efficiently is to have somebody close enough that gets them five or 10,000 at a time and has somebody who rides a circuit every week. And if you need five lights that week, fine. If you need 10, 20, whatever. Distribution. And frankly, financial. I mean, I think we're limited in terms of what we can, how many we can order at a time and how many we can send to a given place based on, on having the financial resources to do that. So far, we haven't run out of money. We've got a $50,000 credit line. We haven't borrowed a dollar against it. So we're, we're, we're not, John and I are not risk averse. <laughs> I was just wondering on how you guys are guaranteed that everyone's going to use these lights to their full potential. And by that I mean, like, I can imagine it being raining, some mud getting on there, or the screen cracks, or some small little technical difficulty that you guys can surely, like, fix, but um, that someone else who has a light out there wouldn't have the resources to know how to use. What I'm trying to get at is how do you know that you're educating your buyers to use your product to their full potential? I'm going to answer, John. Well, go ahead. We don't. Um... <laughs> So in one case, Pangea has been distributing in Ghana, and they've sent people there, and they have someone there who's been trained in how to repair these if necessary and how they work and educate people. And so if one doesn't appear to be working, then you know, it goes back to that person, and, and he's also collecting the information for us in terms of you know, what, what problems were experienced or whatever. Um, we are sending, for example, spare batteries with shipments. And the idea is the local organization there will, if someone has a problem, the battery fails, they'll collect the battery and give them a new one, at, perhaps for free, if, certainly if it's within a short period of time, but after a couple of years at, at cost. In Ghana, I mean, the lights that we, we spend about a dollar for, you can buy in Ghana re rechargeable AA batteries. They cost $11 there. And there's just has, you know, not a big market for rechargeable batteries. And so you know, we can ship it there for $1.50, right? And, and uh, so we want to do that to, to provide for that. If you want the battery at our cost, you have to give us the old battery back. We want to sell it to people who have the lights, and we want to recycle the old battery. That, that was one of the points that came to us originally from Ghana, was that our competition was partially kerosene, but the thing that was replacing it was LED lights. These little keychain lamps that, you know, we all buy, you can buy those in Ghana for a dollar. And so that was the, that was the trade-off, was would people pay X dollars for our light versus a dollar for that? And, you know, that's a terrible solution, right? Because the battery dies and you throw it away. And you probably don't put it in a nice, clean landfill. It just, you know, who knows what happens to it. So we don't want the world to go to non-rechargeable batteries and, and you throw them away after a few hours of use, whatever the, the battery lasts. So um, that's been our push has been to get down to that $6 level, dollar level 
where people would, wouldn't consider that as an alternative. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.